Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Though horsemen press proudly on, though horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Father, we thank you for your word, which changes us and continues to change us. And we ask that um, we pray for the message this morning, that you would open our hearts to hear it, that we may glorify you throughout this week. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone, for, uh, I think my papers might blow off, so if we, uh, if you have me running and chasing, maybe help me out. Um, no, that's fine. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Jake. Um, for those of you who are new um, this week, um, welcome to Aletheia. Uh, we're in our second week of the Old Testament book, Habakkuk. I don't know what I'm doing with my paper here, so. Uh, we're in our second week of the Old Testament book, Habakkuk, which is part of our summer series called The Forgotten Books. Uh, last week, Brent did a great job of uh, introducing to us the book of Habakkuk uh, in the Old Testament um, and bringing us up to speed with, uh, with what was going on at the time the dialogue took place between Habakkuk and God. If you recall from last week, what's unique about this prophetic word uh, is that Habakkuk uh, isn't uh, declaring to the people, but rather this is just a view into the conversation that was happening between him and God. So last week we started in chapter 1 and covered verses 1 through 4, um, and he's, uh, if, if you guys don't know uh, Habakkuk, he's a, a minor prophet in the southern territory of Israel, uh, otherwise known as Judah. So we left off with Habakkuk crying out to God, and so the question that leads us into today is what led to that. As Brent shared, God's people over the past few hundred years prior to that moment had gone through cycles of seeking the Lord and turning away from him to their sinful ways. Just prior to this time, King Josiah had led a revival and God's people were seeking him. I think I might actually turn that fan. Don't mind me. I should bring it down to you guys. Towards you guys. As you guys can tell, today's a little bit dysfunctional, so we're just going to enjoy this. All 
already. So they were uh, essentially uh, turning away from the Lord, seeking the Lord, this kind of back and forth cycle. Um, and then Josiah leads this revival. They are seeking the Lord. And then a few years before this text is written, uh, King Josiah dies. And with his death, death the shift begins uh, back away from God. And their people's attention is turned uh, to themselves. And the unrighteous begin to prosper. Idols were reconstructed and prostitution moved into the temple. So if you guys weren't here last week, the temple was literally a house for prostitution, not quite um, meant by design. Uh, and, and so the, the people continue uh, to worship Moloch and Baal, and those who didn't were persecuted. What a time to be alive, right? Uh, so we see Habakkuk looking around and wondering what is going on and how God could allow this to happen. Why? would God allow this to happen? So he cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look at wrong? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Today, we'll be continuing in chapter one and covering verses five through 11. But before we jump in, I wanna do a quick breakdown of biblical hermeneutic. Um, it's important, no matter uh, where you are, that you're able to read the word of God for yourself and understand it in order to test the teaching that you hear. When we say hermeneutics, what we mean are the set of rules or parameters that we use to interpret the text. So our biblical hermeneutic is uh, what allows us to approach the scriptures in a way that we can best see the author's intent and ultimately God's intent and truth. Um, so uh, for those of you who may wonder, you know, we're in 2017, the writer gets to determine the meaning of the text, not the reader. Again, the writer gets to determine the meaning of the text, not the reader. If you believe that I'm wrong, try arguing that with your professor the next time uh, you take a test that that doesn't matter, uh, that it's your opinion that determines the meaning of the text uh, and not what's actually written. Uh, even in 2017 where nobody can be wrong, I have a feeling you're going to lose that argument. Uh, we break the word down using a few different lenses. Uh, you can think of these as various magnifying, magnifying glasses or magnifying lenses um, that we're going to use as we read. The first is literal. When reading the word, we should first view the scriptures to literally mean what they say. We have a room full of very intelligent people. Well, it's like half, well, fully intelligent, half full. Uh, <laughs> that uh, you guys know society takes the term literal and abuses it to not truly change the meaning, but to use it uh, the wrong way, right? Uh, I'm so hungry, I could literally eat a cow. You can't literally eat a cow, you could figuratively eat a cow. So literally means actually without exaggeration. So when we approach God's word, our initial lens is that the scriptures are speaking literally, unless there's information to suggest that the message is symbolic or figures of speech are being used. When we read that Jesus fed the 5,000, we should assume that it was actually 5,000 people. Another area we can miss the mark with literal interpretation is to look for more than what the text is actually saying. Finding creative ways to try to make it sound like it's talking about something else. 
And there are many areas of scripture that refer to past events, future events, and have allegorical meaning. But we can't take the whole Bible and treat every verse as if it has some underlying double meaning written specifically for me and my next step in life. As an example, I just read two news updates uh, recently for Amazon. Uh, one is that they're hiring 5,000 people to work from home. And number two is that they just bought out Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. That's billion with a B. Somebody out there is going to have a bad day at work and find themselves reading John when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and say, wait a second, 5,000 people were fed. There's Jesus and his 12 disciples. That's 13 people. They fed using five loaves, two fish, that's seven, 13 and seven, 5,000. Amazon's buying Whole Foods for 13.7 billion people, hiring 5,000 people. God wants me to quit my job and work for Amazon. It's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. Our hermeneutic is going to help protect against poor interpretation and the misuse of scripture. The second lens is historical. Uh, this is going to help us get a picture of what's actually uh, being communicated, what was happening at the time these words were written. That's why gave, Brent gave us the background that he did last week. Uh, if we put those podcasts up, you guys can go back and listen to it. It might take a few months, but you guys can go back. Um, I, would, I was going to insert a joke that we should also, also um, mimic the climate that they experienced in Israel at this time. Um, so we turned the AC off for you guys and really wanted you to, to feel it. <laughs> no, so the third, the third lens is uh, grammatical. Um, I've got a, a quick image for you guys. I think I've got an image for you guys. Let's eat grandma, or let's eat grandma. Um, punctuation saves lives. Um, but as we look at this text, we need to know that the words are being used, whether they were written in Hebrew or Greek, and understand how that specific word may impact the meaning, since most of us aren't Greek and Hebrew scholars. We're gonna use tools like the Keyword Study Bible or apps like Blue Letter Bible, uh, to get a better understanding of words that may change the meaning or impact the verse or the passage that we're reading. The fourth lens is contextual. Uh, in the co it's the context of what's going on in the verses immediately before the verse that we're reading, in the chapter that we're reading, the book, and ultimately how it fits within the entire Bible. And there are many verses we can point to that, that are commonly used out of context and jokingly referred to as coffee cup verses. The first is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This wasn't written a couple thousand years ago so that your sports team could beat another, or so that you can avoid studying on your finals and still get an A. That's not, uh, that's not what's happening in this verse, um, and if you read before this verse, you can clearly see that Paul is writing from prison and saying, I've continued on in the faith when I was free and when I was well-fed and when I was hungry and when I was in prison. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's talking about staying faithful and seeking the Lord no matter what life throws at him. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. If we read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 19, we'll see that Jesus isn't talking about church, but rather church discipline. If your brother sins against you, bring it to him one-on-one, -on -one, and if he listens, perfect, you've won him back. If he doesn't listen, bring two or three other believers that he knows and trusts who have also witnessed this sin habit in his life. That way, multiple believers are confronting him and they are in agreement that this sin habit is taking place. If he doesn't listen, bring him before the church. The passage isn't saying anything 
about how Jesus is somehow being present once two or three believers get together. There's no, you know, mystical happening once it's two, because then is it two, is it three? Like, when does it actually happen? Um, if we are believers, we already have the Spirit. We're not waiting for multiple believers to get together for that to occur. He's saying that if multiple believers are agreeing that, there's a, that they are noticing a sin pattern in your life, that when they approach you to call you to repentance, it's as if Jesus himself is calling you to repentance. That's the level of authority you should consider that they're approaching you with. So the context around what we're reading will help give light to the meaning. Uh, five, um, the next one here is that scripture is the best interpreter for scripture. What we mean by this is sometimes we run across certain verses that sound a little odd or are worded a little bit uniquely, and they make the interpretation a little bit more challenging. So we consider the rest of the truths that we know about the Bible to eliminate wrong interpretations. Numbers 23.19 tells us that God does not lie. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we find ourselves reading and we come across something that sounds a little bit off, we should allow the truths of the scripture to keep us from leaving with a faulty interpretation. Okay, uh, let's finally get to our text this morning. Uh, Habakkuk 1.5. I have to imagine your your Bible doesn't naturally flip open to Habakkuk. (laughs) Um, So um, it might take a couple minutes for you guys to find uh, your place. Uh, Don't worry, everybody's going to take a couple minutes. Um, If you start at the New Testament in the book of Matthew uh, and go back five books, you're going to find Habakkuk nestled between Nahum and Zephaniah, and maybe 10 or 20 pages, or if you have an app, you might have to keep scrolling to look for it, um, but you'll find it. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 5 and go through verse 11. The reason we took a short detour or long detour into biblical hermeneutics uh, is because what we're going to see here in verse 5, if you recall, Habakkuk just cried out to God, and this is God's response. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So without additional context, it kind of sounds like God's going to answer Habakkuk's prayer in a pretty epic response. And he is, just not the way that you might expect. Habakkuk sees God's people worshiping Moloch and Baal. Children are being sacrificed, and the temple is turned into a house of prostitution. And so Habakkuk is asking, God, how long are you going to allow people to continue living in their wickedness? Why are you allowing them to continue living in their wickedness? If you're a just God, why are they not being punished for their wrongdoing? And God responds and says, I'm handling it. In fact, take a step back and watch. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, the Chaldeans, as Brent mentioned, these are, these are just Babylonians, um, and these people are bad. Uh, these are a very, very wicked and horrific nation of people. Um, if you don't mind, throw up uh, 2 Kings 25, verse 7. This is uh, about the, the Babylonians. It says, They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. So, true story, uh, back in 2004, there's a U.S. citizen beheaded in Iraq named Nick Berg. Uh, 
I don't know if many of you might remember that name, might ring a bell, um, but shortly after his beheading, this video of, of his beheading was posted and started to, to uh, find its way online. Being young and cu curious and stupid, I watched it. Um, it's been 13 years and I can still see them cutting his head off to this day. Um, the Chaldeans, in this scenario, slaughter the sons of the king and then rip his eyes out so that the last thing he sees is his sons being murdered. And then they bind him up and they take him to Babylon. These are terrifyingly awful, awful people. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. God is saying, all right, Habakkuk, you wanted to know how I was going to punish this generation? This is how. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press, on prou or press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Now, these people are the worst of the worst. Their might and their wickedness is on a totally different level. And God allowed their sinful desires to come to fruition to conquer Judah. That's a little bit tough to, to work through, um, but simply put, if God had not allowed them to do it, they never could have conquered Judah and exiled God's people into the, out of the promised land. Now, I know this can be a little bit confusing as to what exactly is going on. The short of it is God is allowing the Babylonians to rise to power and punish Judah. God is in control of the political climate, and he has allowed this to occur. Now, Habakkuk wanted God to intervene to bring justice to the nation of Judah, and that, that is exactly what God is going to do. He is allowing the wickedness of Babylon to punish the wickedness of Judah. Now, if you're wondering, yes, God does punish the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, for their wickedness as well, and we'll get into that in a couple weeks. Excuse me. Now, I want to pause here and point out that there are many similarities between how Babylon is acting and what we see in ISIS. One of the important things or important points to understand when we understand context, when we read, is to be careful of reading into things and drawing conclusions that are not there. This is not a foreshadow to today. God didn't raise up the Babylonians to conquer Judah so that we could pretend this was about ISIS in America. That is not what happened. We're not going to pretend that America is Judah in God's chosen people. And we're not going to pretend that this was written simply as a warning for our nation to get our act together. Now, are there similarities? Of course there are. Can we learn from what, we, what we've seen, uh, excuse me, can we learn uh, from what has happened and what we've seen in God's word? Absolutely. That's why God gave it to us. Um, could God allow something like that to occur today? Yes. But it's extremely important that we see this text for exactly what it is and that we don't invent our own meaning every time we find a similarity. Sorry for the side tangent, but I felt that needed to be said. Okay, so I think we have a good understanding of what's happening. 
but I have to imagine most of you are still struggling a little bit with why this is happening. Why is God allowing these people, his people, to be exiled and killed? To understand this uh, a little bit more, um, we need to understand where God is positionally. We all like to think that we have the perfect moral compass, or at least a pretty good one. To that end, we're not dissimilar to the Chaldeans, wishing justice would go forth from ourselves. One of the most challenging things about our faith is finding, excuse me, fighting our feelings with the truth. What do our feelings tell us? Well, our feelings lie to us. They tell us that we are the standard and that we know what is best. If you look around any, you know, situation or circumstance, you're never, Kevin's example over and over is, you know, when you're speeding, you obviously want to break, you know, but if somebody flies by you going 20 over, you look around and wait for the cop to pull him over, and if it happens, you kind of do that short little fist pump, and you, you say, yes, that's awesome. Uh, for me, uh, especially with work or other situations, I find that I have uh, a lot less patience if somebody is not doing as good of a job or putting forth the effort that I am. If somebody's putting more, well then, I mean, it's not my fault that I'm not there, but they should be at least trying as hard or doing as well as I am. That's my standard. We are created beings. Genesis 1 and 2 say that God, excuse me, in the beginning, there was God. Just God. He has always been. Nobody created him. Nobody thought of him. Before there is anything, there is God. Triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the term in Hebrew written here for God is Elohim. Now this is, the term is plural, meaning one God and three persons. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God wasn't bored. He didn't create us in order to fill some void. He had perfect community within the Godhead. So when God creates us, we see in John 1.1 that he speaks everything into existence through Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the, excuse me, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Nothing existed. God spoke everything into existence. Us, animals, water, earth, planets, every star, and the expanse of everything that has been created, he spoke into existence through Jesus. Remember the story of Job? When God, excuse me, when Job questions God, how does God respond in chapter 38? says, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? This is God's response to Job. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who's speaking when he doesn't know what he's talking about? God is using a little bit of, of sarcasm and, and asking a little bit of a rhetorical question here. He's saying, Job, you don't know anything. Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I, la when I laid the foundations of the earth? God continues listing one thing after another. The oceans, the clouds, the rain, the lightning, the light, stars, and so on and so forth, down to ensuring that the ravens are fed. God leaves no doubt that he is sovereign over, over all 
and completely in control. So there are no accidents when it comes to God. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't need an eraser or whiteout. If something has occurred, he has allowed it to happen. If God wanted to stop you from being here today, he could have done it. Time and time again, we see that the world responds when God desires. God raises up Abram and a lineage after him. He raises up Moses and he parts the Red Sea and the Red Sea obeys him. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. He flees on a boat. God commands the ocean to become violent. The crew tosses Jonah overboard, essentially to die. God commands a fish to swallow him where he'll spend three days in the belly of the fish and this fish will spit him out on land. When Jesus tells the lame to get up and walk, they walk. When he tells the storm to be still, it does. When he tells someone who has been dead for days to come back to life, they do. This is the God of the Bible. He created all things for his glory and for us to look upon him in holy and perfect, excuse me, in, in holiness and perfection to be astounded and worship him for who he is. So this term holy means to be set apart. So as we, you know, consider ourselves, you know, to be good people, ultimately we need to ask more so in the sense of, of binary, right? We either are perfectly good or we are not perfectly good, uh, one or zero. He is perfect and we are not. And so naturally that causes a little bit of tension and we say, wait a minute, would I go to hell for a little white lie? I can guarantee you and I both are far more wicked than a little white lie, uh, but even, yes, that is cause enough. Since God is the highest authority, rebelling against him is the ultimate act of treason. It's like cosmic treason. Think of it as, you know, our country or nation. If you were to commit treason, treason the penalty is death. God is obviously much, much bigger than our country. It's an act of cosmic treason. So many of you have heard Kevin use this example before, and I love using it um, because I think it really hits home for a lot of our students and those of you who are now graduated. Um, when you were applying to school, there were minimum GPA requirements. Let's imagine for a second that the requirements were that you had to have a 4.0 to get in to UF. No honors, no AP classes, everything was unweighted, right? 4.0, standard classes. In your first semester of your freshman year of high school, you got a B. No rounding up, are you getting a 4.0? No. Are you getting into UF? No. 4.0 is perfection. Pretty good doesn't matter. Close doesn't matter. Only perfect matters. A just judge is not wrong or immoral to enact punishment on the guilty. And God is the ultimate and most righteous judge. You can question him, but I can assure you, you're on the losing end of that argument. Psalm 53, 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So none of us are good, none of us can get enough A's uh, or do enough good deeds to enter the kingdom of heaven. All sin will be met with the wrath of God. This would be an incredibly, incredibly sad story if it ended here. But the beauty of what we see in the Old Testament is that God is faithful. 
And the beauty of what we see in the New Testament is that God is faithful. Fast forward from this moment in Habakkuk, 600 years or so, and we see that God punishes sin again, but this time it is the perfect Son of God taking on the punishment for sin, and his name is Jesus. He humbled himself, taking the form of man, lived the perfect life that none of us were capable of, and in the midst of rebelling against him, he died and bore the wrath of God, paying the penalty for our wickedness and granting us his righteousness. This act is referred to as substitutionary atonement. In this one moment, Jesus has made an atonement for our sins for once and for all. So let's answer two questions as we close. Why did Jesus do this? And how do we partake of his righteousness? The first question, why did he do it? Romans 5, uh, I think I gave you two shorter verses here. 5, I'm going to go 6 through 9. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God. So reading verse 8 and 9 again. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He he died and gave us his right standing to enjoy his presence forever because he loves us. Despite our wickedness and our propensity to turn our eyes away from him, he died and rose again to pay the penalty of all of our sin, past, present, and future sins. I know that's something to, um, it's a little bit challenging to wrap your your head around, wrap your mind around. Um, It's very easy for Christians, especially, this is kind of where I fall, it's easy for me to believe that God died for my past sins, but it's challenging for me to believe that he died for my present and future sins. When God is outside of time, he's aware of the depth of our wickedness, both what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen. And he did it because he loves us. The second question, and the last question, how do we partake of his righteousness? Acts 20, 21, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, and he says that he preached two things. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God is, a, is the word metanoia in the Greek, which is the milita- military term for an about face. So you're walking one, one way and your mind has changed and you've turned around and you are now facing toward God. And the second is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This term faith is the term pistis, which is the firm conviction or belief that Jesus is the promised Messiah who died, taking on the penalty of our sin, was buried and rose again three days later, granting us his positional righteousness, which is justification before the Father. I've used uh, this example before, gift cards, they're, they're I don't know if they're more or less popular. I don't get as many anymore. I guess less Christmas gifts or something. Uh, But I always use this example that 
you, everyone has that one gift card that's kind of been sitting in your cup holder in your wallet for like five years. You have no idea if there's any money on it. And so when you go to use it at Starbucks or somewhere else, you kind of half hand, you're almost embarrassed to use it because you know it's going to not work. You kind of half hand it to them, crossing your fingers, hoping that it works. That's not faith, right? Faith is you know you placed, you know, 50 bucks in your account and you take your debit card and you walk up and in confidence you swipe your card knowing that this card is going to work, right? If I were to swipe my card, I have confidence that this is going to work. We're not having faith in Jesus that is kind of a, well, we might as well believe in him because, you know, if it works out and he is real, then good for me. Uh, no, this is a confidence so much so that in that scenario, if the debit card is swiped and it's declined, you don't just take it back embarrassed. You ask him to run it again because you know that there's enough funds in the account to cover the transaction. That's the confidence. It's the belief in Jesus that he is who he says he, he is, who he says he is, God in the flesh, and that he has bore the wrath of God for our sins and given us his righteousness. Uh, we're going to, uh, to pray, and then um, the band is going to come back up, and uh, we're going to take communion. Uh, we take communion here every week. Um, if you're a believer, um, feel encouraged uh, to, to take communion. If you're not a believer, um, there's nothing magic about it. It's stale bread and juice that's been sitting out for at least an hour. Um, so it doesn't taste good. So we're not doing it for the flavor. Um, uh, we're doing this because this is symbolizing what we believe has happened with Jesus, that he has shed his body, the bread, and shed his blood, the juice. Um, and we're doing this in remembrance for what he's done for us. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come back up here. Um, just pray that you guys would um, be overwhelmed by the love that God has for us and that we should be thankful for his justice, but ultimately his mercy and his grace. Uh, Father, thank you for um, everyone who is now drenched in sweat uh, this morning, who came out here when half the church is either home enjoying their summer vacations uh, and then the other probably quarter is uh, in Colombia. God, I pray for um, those who are in Colombia, God, that you would uh, work uh, through them, um, give them the words to speak, uh, cross the language barrier, Lord, uh, allow um, the people um, in the churches and the community down there to know that they're loved both by us, by the local church, but ultimately, God, by you. Um, I pray that you would continue to encourage and grow us, um, allow us to have a desire and a fervor both for your word and for a relationship with you through prayer. Um, God, you are doing amazing things here in Gainesville and all over the world, and God, we are thankful for your grace and your truth um, and your love for us. Um, God, I ask that you would lift up these people today, um, that you would encourage them, allow them to know that they are loved, by you. In Jesus' name, amen.